And after this, before the food, there will be a chance for questions about the things uh, we've thought about, questions, comments, uh, maybe even corrections. So uh, you can keep that in mind as we go through this. Today we're picking up on our series called Habits of Discipleship. And let me just pray before we begin looking at this. Father, we realize that what we're going to think about here affects all of us. Uh, It's a challenge to all of us when we think about fellowship. And so I pray that you will help us, teach us, and uh, if there are things that we have been aware of and we have forgotten, I pray that you will remind us. And I pray that our time together will draw us a little bit closer as a church body and strengthen the ties between us and all for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The verses we're using as a foundation for this series come from 1 Timothy, which says, Train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And so far we've looked at the habits of Bible reading, prayer, and stewardship. First of all, stewardship of our time, and then stewardship of our money and possessions. And this evening we come to fellowship. We're going to think about this over two months because I think there are two main areas to fellowship. But first of all, we need to decide what exactly we mean when we use the word fellowship. Anyone willing to offer a suggestion? Take a stab at defining fellowship? We use the word quite a lot, but... Being together? Any advance on being together? Communion with fellow believers? Supporting one another? Sharing together? That's very close uh, to what I had. Here's the definition that, that I'm going to use tonight. Fellowship means participating together. So we were coming pretty close to that. But it's very important to realize that fellowship is not just saying that we're all interested in the same thing. Fellowship is not even talking about the same thing over coffee. Fellowship is participating. It's being involved together. And the Bible has plenty to say about fellowship. We'll look at just one example that helps us understand what fellowship is. This is from Luke's Gospel. And the context is Simon Peter has just caught a huge catch of fish. And we're told this. He and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Now what on earth does that have to do with fellowship? Well, literally, the last bit reads, those in fellowship with Simon. So, Simon, James, and John ran a fishing business together. They were business partners. 
They didn't just talk about fishing, they participated together in actually doing it. So maybe they shared the startup cost of the boat and the nets. They certainly shared the day-to-day effort of running the fishing business. They worked shoulder-to-shoulder to make the enterprise succeed. That's what fellowship is. Now, obviously, we are not running a fishing business. So what is it that we are to participate in together? Well, I think biblically there are two aspects to fellowship. First of all, Christian community and then Christian witness. Next time, we'll look at our fellowship together in witness. But this time, we're going to focus on Christian community, our life together as God's people. And the New Testament uses a particular picture for this. It's the picture of the body. And there really are a lot of places in the New Testament where this comes up. But we'll just look briefly at three of them. First of all, in Romans, Paul says, Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And then from 1 Corinthians, God has put the body together so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And just one more from Ephesians. From him, that's from Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Those passages, all of them, are calling us to Christian community. They tell us we belong to one another and we are to share our lives with one another. We are to participate together in life, both the suffering and the joys of life. And you'll notice in those passages there is no exemption given for introverts like me. We are all called to participate together in Christian community. So what does this fellowship look like? What's involved in Christian community? We're going to think about four aspects of it. Service, accountability, loyalty, and then personal fellowship with God. So first of all, service. Galatians says this, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. That's a pretty striking verse. It says whatever responsibility we have to those who are outside the church, our first responsibility is to those inside the church. Now, we're going to think next time of our responsibility to those outside, how we're called to participate together in witness. That's next month. 
But the biblical order is Christian community is the first responsibility. Part of the reason for that is if we don't love and serve each other, then our witness to the world has got no credibility. Our witness is a non-starter if we don't care for one another. So we are to do good especially to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And notice Paul says this service is to be as we have opportunity. So the Bible is realistic. We don't all have the same opportunity. Our resources differ from person to person. Some of us have lots of resources of health and energy, but at this stage in our life we might have very little time. Some of us have lots and lots of time, but not so much health and energy. Some of us have larger homes. That gives us different opportunities than those who have smaller homes. Those of us with believing families may have more opportunities in certain areas than those who share a home with a non-believer. Our situations are all different. So we all have different opportunities to serve. But we are to use the opportunities we have. Especially for doing good to the family of believers. Here are some truths about service. It has to be intentional. What we're talking about is not going to happen by accident. In fact, none of the things in this whole series are going to happen by accident. Not Bible reading, not prayer, not good stewardship, not fellowship. And within fellowship, service is not going to happen by accident. We have to commit to serving. We have to find ways to serve. Now the elders have a big responsibility to help with this. We have to show you ways to serve and opportunities. And we're talking at the moment about how we can do that better. But don't wait for an announcement from the front before you begin to serve. Take the initiative to find ways. Some of you have done that by coming to the elders and asking or even bringing an idea sometimes. That's good. And as you get to know people, you will soon see more opportunities than you're able to take up. Jerry Bridges says this, if we have a servant attitude, we can develop an observant eye. The reason most of us do not see opportunities to serve is that we are continually thinking about ourselves instead of others. Now I realize for all of us that probably stings a little bit. But if we think about it, some of us might decide there's some truth in it for us. Don Whitney puts it this way, those with hearts to serve always find ways to serve. And he goes on in his book to give us Lots of suggestions. I just want to read a section for you to give you a sense of the variety of opportunities. He says, The ministry of serving may be as public as preaching or teaching, but more often it will be as sequestered as nursery duty. It may be as visible as singing a solo, but usually 
It will go as unnoticed as operating the sound equipment to amplify the solo. Serving may be as appreciated as a powerful testimony in a worship service. But typically, it's as thankless as washing dishes after a church social, like tonight. Then he says, beyond the church walls, serving can manifest itself as babysitting, taking meals to families in flux, running errands for the homebound, providing transportation for the one whose car breaks down, helping with lawn or home maintenance, feeding pets and watering plants for vacationers, and hardest of all, displaying a servant's heart in the home. Once we make the commitment that we're going to serve, we will find ways to serve. We will notice opportunities we never noticed before. The second truth about service is that it's costly. Here's how the Apostle Paul described his service. He says, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. The word translated strenuously contend is where our English word agonize comes from. Now that doesn't mean Paul's service was without joy. He says he experiences Christ's power enabling him to serve. But it is still tiring for Paul. Here's Don Whitney again. Service that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Now some of us are inspired by this idea of costly service. Maybe you have read biographies of great missionaries, people who face jungles and cannibals, or maybe secret police and prison. And those stories can inspire us to serve. But we can be a bit deflated when we discover service is not usually quite that glamorous. Giving someone a lift to church or doing their shopping, that kind of stuff doesn't seem like much of an adventure. But it's the kind of service most of us are called to. Often part of the cost of serving is not just that it's tiring. Part of the cost is that no one seems to notice it. There's no applause. No one writes a book about our service. No one makes a film about it. Our ego doesn't get any strokes from it. So the question is, are we willing to take on service that is costly in that way? Costly because it's going unnoticed and it's going unapplauded. At this point, we should think for a moment about the whole question of spiritual gifts because we have to have a balanced attitude to spiritual gifts. The New Testament says all of us have different gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit. And ideally, we would all serve in ways that allowed us to use our gifts. But it isn't always going to be like that. The verse we looked at in Galatians says we are to serve as we have opportunity. 
And sometimes the opportunity is not going to match what we feel our gifts are. So we need to be careful about saying, I'm not going to do that because it's not my gift. I know that person would be blessed by being invited around for dinner and having someone listen to them and pray with them, but that's not my gift. So I just hope somebody else does it. It is good to try and serve in ways that use our gifts. But sometimes part of the cost of serving is that we serve in ways we do not feel gifted. We serve in situations where we feel awkward and uncomfortable. And we do it because God has set the opportunity in front of us. He has given us the resources or the time. And we're not going to turn away and hope that somebody else does it. Here's an example of this. It says, a missionary in Africa was asked if he really liked what he was doing. His response was shocking. Do I like this work? He replied, no. My wife and I do not like dirt. We have reasonably refined sensibilities. We do not like crawling into vile huts through goat refuse. But is a man to do nothing for Christ he does not like? Liking or disliking has nothing to do with it. We have orders to go and we go. Love constrains us. Now obviously that particular couple were in a highly unusual situation. But the key point is his question there, is a man or woman to do nothing for Christ they don't like? At times we are all going to be called to do things we don't like. And there are some situations nobody is going to like, no matter what their gifts are. So the question is, are we willing to take on service that's costly in that way? Because we feel out of our depth. And at this point, there's something we need to clarify. When we say service is costly, we are not saying you serve until you burn yourself out. No, remember, service is part of fellowship. And fellowship is about participating together. So service has to be shared. As a church body, we are to share the cost of service. If any one of us is close to burning out, that means there's a problem somewhere. It means either some people aren't letting others help or some people are refusing to help. The church should never be a place where anyone is worked to the point of collapse. And I'm not particularly thinking here about pastors. Because it's just as easy for someone who works outside the church to get signed up for every ministry in the church just because they're willing. And they end up working just about every night in the church and weekends as well. As elders, we are reading a book at the moment by a pastor called Ray Evans. He's a pastor in Bedford. 
And he explains the ideal when it comes to service. We want a culture where all are encouraged to serve somewhere, but no one is allowed to do too much. And that's what we want. We don't want to be a fellowship where just a few serve. Christians who are worn out and disillusioned are not a good witness. They don't reflect healthy fellowship. What that means is maybe some of us need to take a step up to serve. And maybe we all need to ask whether some people are being allowed to do too much. So when we hear the word costly, let's realize there will be a cost, but let's also be serious about sharing the cost. The church is not supposed to be like a football game where 22 people badly in need of rest are watched by 22,000 people badly in need of exercise. The church isn't supposed to be like that. True fellowship doesn't leave room for spectators. A fourth truth about service is that it's a privilege. We do need to be ready for the cost of service. But we mustn't miss this truth. The same Apostle Paul who said he agonized in service for God also said this. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace. For all the pressure and sometimes even the exhaustion of service, Paul knew it was a privilege to serve. Paul knew he could still have been defying Christ. He could still have been persecuting the church and on his way to hell. But by God's grace, he got to serve the church and to serve the cause of the gospel. And Paul says this about the churches in Macedonia. The context is he was organizing a collection for the churches in Jerusalem. And he says this about the Macedonian Christians. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. I'm as guilty as anyone when it comes to being a grumpy servant. But when any of us get like that, let's stop and realize what a privilege it is to serve the king of the universe by serving the church. We could be giving our time and our energy to something worthless. But we get to serve the living God. What do we have to be grumpy about? Finally, on service, it is never in vain. Back in the 1960s, When President Kennedy visited the headquarters of NASA, on that visit he met one of the toilet cleaners. The president asked the man about his work, and the man proudly announced, my job is to help put a man on the moon. A toilet cleaner. 
But that man had a big vision of his work. He knew he was contributing to something significant. His work was part of a larger mission. And we need to see our service in a similar way. If you take someone a meal or if you take the time to phone someone or give them a lift to hospital, you are serving the church. You're building bonds of fellowship. You're making the church a little bit more healthy and a little bit more strong. You're helping this Christian community reflect a little bit more of God's glory and God's grace. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, it is true, sometimes we need to step back and assess what we're doing. Just because we've been laboring at one particular thing for 10 years, that doesn't automatically mean we should do the same thing for the next 10 years. New opportunities come along. Sometimes it's wise to redirect our labor in the Lord. But the point is, your labor is never in vain. It might not get the notice it deserves on this earth. It might not bring the results you were hoping for, but it is never in vain. It's part of something bigger. And sometimes only God knows where your service fits in the big picture. But it does fit. So don't give in to discouragement, whatever way it is that you're serving. We're going to look more briefly at three other aspects of participating together in Christian community. Alongside service, there needs to be accountability. And here's a definition of accountability. It's being willing to risk opening our lives to others in order to become answerable for our attitudes and actions. Being willing to risk opening our lives to others in order to become answerable for our attitudes and actions. There's a definition, and here is a biblical basis for accountability. This is from the book of Hebrews. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And we might ask, well, why do we need others to prevent us being hardened by sin's deceitfulness? Why not just work on it by ourselves? Why do we need others? We need others because, in the words of Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things. My own heart will deceive me. My heart will tell me my sin isn't really that bad. In fact, it will tell me my sin is perfectly justified under the circumstances. My heart will tell me that my sinful words are okay because they're not as bad as what she's saying. My heart will tell me my sinful behavior is okay because it's not as bad as what he's doing. 
My heart will tell me my sinful attitudes are okay because no one else knows about them except God, but we know he's not going to tell anybody. God puts us in community so we can participate together in overcoming our deceitful hearts. You and I will not grow in holiness apart from Christian community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. So if the idea of accountability makes your stomach churn, ask yourself, is that just because I'm English? Is it just because I'm reserved? Or could it be because I'm comfortable with certain sins in my life and I don't want to be challenged about them? That is sin demanding to have you by yourself. We need to participate together in the fight against sin. God is not glorified when you or I soldier on in isolation. That's not true fellowship. And Bonhoeffer goes on to say the more isolated we are, the more power sin is going to have over us. And that's what we saw in the Hebrew passage too. So let's consider this. Let's not just dismiss it because we're English. And we know it's not very English to bear your soul. But according to the New Testament, it is Christian to bear your soul. And we are Christians first. Here's another definition of what's involved in accountability. There's a lot in it, but we'll not rush on from it after we've read it. It says, accountability includes opening one's life to a few carefully selected, trusted, individual confidence, confidants who speak the truth, who have the right to examine, to question, to approve, and to give counsel. Allowing someone to ask penetrating, sometimes uncomfortable questions in order to challenge you to grow. Notice a couple of things there. It is unwise to open your life to just anyone. We have to carefully select who we're going to open up to. It has to be someone you trust. And that doesn't mean someone who's always going to agree with you. It means someone who you can trust not to spread around what you tell them. Not someone who's always going to say you're doing fine. If you are not sure about someone, get to know them a bit better first. Test the waters before you jump in in the way that's described here. And obviously, this only works if we're honest with each other. Asking someone to hold you accountable is just pointless if you're going to lie to them. 
If you and I are going to train ourselves for godliness, we need to participate together in accountability. Without accountability, Christian community is just a show. We also need loyalty. We need loyalty because our Christian brothers and sisters are not always going to speak and act in the way they should. Our Christian brothers and sisters are not always going to be as sensitive and understanding as they ought to be or as we think they ought to be. And that means sooner or later we are going to be tempted to take ourselves somewhere else. Somewhere we will find a new, holier set of brothers and sisters. Now it has to be recognized, sometimes there are good reasons to leave a fellowship. If a fellowship denies the gospel or ignores the gospel, if it teaches false doctrine, if it refuses to practice discipline, there are sometimes good reasons to go. But for now, let's leave those good reasons to one side. And let's think about the reasons we generally feel like leaving a fellowship. It's not usually because of false doctrine, is it? It's usually something much less significant than that. It's more likely to be some personal offense, something that's wounded our pride. One writer says this, one reason why it is hard for people to live in community is that we lack loyalty. And we know it. Loyalty to the church flies in the face of selfish ambition and self-love. As loyalty depends on personal sacrifice and the willingness to reconcile and forgive. If you and I are going to participate together in Christian community, there are going to be times when we have to overlook our wounded pride and our self-love. We have to be willing to ask forgiveness. We have to be willing to accept someone else's request for our forgiveness. Fellowship just doesn't work if we give up when it's hard. When other people are unfair or insensitive or forgetful or lazy. This is what Paul says to the church. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. It's important to remember those are not verses for us to quote to other people. Those verses are for you and me to put into practice ourselves. And that's much, much harder. True fellowship requires loyalty, starting with our own loyalty. I would guess most of us have met people who spend their lives drifting from one church to the next. 
searching for the church that doesn't have any annoying sinners in it. But those people are doomed to fail. There is no church without annoying sinners in it. Those drifters are missing out on the blessing of fellowship. Fellowship that teaches us to die to our selfishness and love other annoying sinners like ourselves. Last of all, another vital aspect of fellowship is personal fellowship with God. Service, accountability, loyalty, none of that is going to work unless we're committed to this. This is the fuel of community fellowship. Someone has said, the depth of our personal relationship with God determines the degree of fellowship possible with each other. The depth of our personal relationship with God determines the degree of fellowship possible with each other. Or again, building the depths of our inner lives builds up the whole community. So if you want to bless this church community, if you want to do that, then read your Bible and pray every day. Ask God to give you fresh grace for every day. Ask him to fill you up with his Holy Spirit every day and give you a heart to serve him every day. Ask him to give you eyes to see the opportunities. Every day, remember you are a sinner saved by God's grace. Every day, listen to God's word and commit yourself to do what it says. Not to build your own reputation, but for God's glory. Pursue a life like that and you will be a blessing to this fellowship. Those are all the things that I had planned to say, but I want to open it up as we always do, for questions, comments, things that may have occurred to you, things that I've forgotten about that I shouldn't have forgotten about. Um, an illustration I've always found helpful on the last point is that of a triangle. I mean, it's normally used with the idea of marriage, but I think it applies to any kind of Christian relationship, the idea that you have God at the top and the two elements of the relationship at the other bottom corners. And if one or the other is not close to God, there's a limit as to how close they can get to one another. Yeah. And equally, if they're both close to God, by, also, by default, they will be closer to one another as well. Yeah. Thank you. That's very helpful.
been performing Labours of Love uh, in the way that you described it. It's thankless. Uh, people don't see what I do, and things like that. I'm always thankful to know that what we do for others is as though we do it unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And that being the case, he sees it all. When other people don't see a thing, he sees it all, and we are blessed through knowing that. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, that's a, a perspective we have to keep coming back to, isn't it? Because we, we have it for a while, and then we can lose it. We have to remind ourselves of that. Just uh, to mention one other thing under service, I know I mentioned a lot of uh, action things under service and some people may feel, well, I, I don't have the physical ability to get around and do any of those things. But one way that we can powerfully serve one another is by using the prayer diary. We're hoping to have the new one uh, running, we're running slightly behind, but we're hoping to have it within the next couple of weeks. And that is a very powerful way that we can serve one another from an armchair at home. It's not the only way. I wouldn't want to say that's all we can do. It's certainly not. But it is a very, very important way we can serve one another. In the middle here, Nathan. Um that the leaders are thinking of ways to encourage one another in a more effective service. Can you um, give some ideas of what's... what's uh well, r- really, it's, uh, it's more the idea that we, we, we talk about... Sometimes church leaders can complain amongst themselves, uh, why are more people not doing more? But actually, sometimes the problem is the church leaders are not showing people where they could serve because people may come into a church and they see things going on and they think well it's all taken care of everything's happening and they they don't have really a sense of where the needs are so really uh, what I what I meant was we're thinking about ways that we can show people opportunities and um, really just give people guidance Rather than assume it's all due to reluctance, assume that it's just due to bad communication on our part and, and that if we showed the uh, openings that more people would actually be keen to fill them. I don't know if that's helpful, but... Uh, I mean, one, one of the things that comes into that is uh, serving in teams. We've often uh, taken the approach of just having rotas and we we push for people to fill spots on rotas, but we're beginning to think of the idea of teams who work together and see, I mentioned that toilet cleaner at at NASA, sometimes in small tasks, we don't see the point of it or where it's connected to the bigger work. So sometimes we could do better at showing where the small things are actually making a very important contribution. Any final thoughts?
I guess um, just a challenge as much to myself as to everyone else, but the question is to how satisfied are we with the fellowship here, with our fellowship with one another, whether there's people we would like to get to know better and whether uh, we feel brave enough to actually say that and do something about it. Thank you. Well, we have an opportunity with food to pick someone we don't know maybe and get to know them a little better. So let's pray and then we can uh, enjoy the time together. Father, we realize this is challenging to all of us. There are probably very few of us who always feel uh, full of enthusiasm for fellowship Sometimes we just want to hide by ourselves. But Father, we do see the importance of one another. Your word insists on it, and I pray that you will convince us of it if we need convincing. I pray that you will help us to grow in our care for one another, the way we notice one another's needs. And Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to share food together. We realize in Scripture Very often food is a way of bringing people together and it's not just eating together but other things happen as well and we pray that that will be the case this evening. I pray that you will help us maybe to look out for people that we haven't looked out for before. And we thank you for everything that's been provided. We take it as a good gift from you and we take our brothers and sisters here as a good gift from you, each of them. We thank you. Amen. Thank you.